0: So for us, the idea of invisibility is a contestable one because, of course, when you ask the question of form, in this one exhibition, it was only towards the end of the exhibition that we looked around and we realized that everything that we have been taught about how invisible Black women are and their artistic practices suddenly there's a whole exhibition that show you that there's no such thing as invisibility. These women have had visibilities. What hasn't happened is how we account for this visibility in writing in the public imagination.
1: Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Christo Doherty, the head of artistic research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Dr. Portia Malachi and Nontumbeko N'tumbela, the curators of When Rain Clouds Gather, an important new exhibition at the Norville Foundation in Cape Town. The exhibition is a reflection on the influential And often unacknowledged contribution of black women to South African art history in the 20th century. Covering the period from 1940 to the year 2000, the exhibition stages a cross-generational communion of 40 black women artists from early modernism to the contemporary period in South Africa. Portia is a senior lecturer in visual cultures at the Michaela School of Fine Arts, University of Cape Town. She's also adjunct curator of Africa an African diaspora at the Hyundai Tate Research Center at the Tate Modern in London, and is adjunct curator at the Norval Foundation in Cape Town. She has a PhD in Visual Culture from Goldsmiths College in London, and an MA in History of Art and a BA in Fine Arts from Wits University. Nontumberko is a lecturer and head of the History of Art Department in the Wits School of Arts at Wits. She has a BA and an MA in Fine Arts from Wits and is currently completing her PhD at UCT. Previously, she was curator of the contemporary collection at the Johannesburg Art Gallery, and before that was curator at the Durban Institute of Technology Art Gallery. In this discussion, we explore the curatorial tools and strategies that Portia Nontobacco deployed in this ambitious undertaking to disrupt existing categories of classification while creating a space to contest the erasure of work by black woman artists in South African art history. We also discuss the challenge of understanding curation itself as a form of creative practice and its importance as a means of making previously suppressed work visible and comprehensible to new audiences. Porsche, Anante great pleasure to have you here and for us to have the chance to speak about this really significant exhibition that you put together, When Rain Clouds Gather. And before we get into the exhibition and the way that you've used medium and design to develop your ideas and your understanding around Black woman artists and South African art history, can I ask you just to talk about your personal trajectories? What brought you to work together on this project? Portia?
2: First of all, thank you so much for the invitation. It's always such a great pleasure to be able to speak about the exhibition, not only from our point of views as the curators, but because of the visibility, it actually gives the work and the artists in the exhibition. So thank you very much for the invitation. So Nonto and I always speak about how our interests in Black women's artistic practices have always sort of been similar and how that has appeared in both our respective works for a very long time, for over a decade. For instance, I did my master's on sort of black feminist artistic practices, although that was with a focus on more contemporary practices. Prior to that moment, and even after, there's obviously been an acknowledgement of the invisibilization of black women's practices, especially in South Africa's art history. And in those moments that visibility is offered, it's often offered in an incredibly suspect and dubious way. So there's always been this interest, obviously, in the merit and the, and the nuance and the practices of Black women, because there's so much to offer there. But in addition to that, there's been also an interest in highlighting the gaps that exist.
0: My path might be slightly longer and tedious. My journey really goes way back from the time I finished I suppose, university at the time, Technical Natal, realising that one doesn't have a place or at least an art historical place to locate my work. And this was in the early 2000s. And being interested in locating my own practice as a black woman, artist then and emerging curator. And it was with this gap that I realised that There wasn't a pool I could refer to, I could speak to, I could engage with. And also the contradiction of the fact that I felt there hadn't been because of my training. But then realizing that there has and will be and and was an available pool of women. Artists were operating but were not largely visible. Whilst that wasn't my primary focus then in terms of scholarly inquiry, it became quite an interesting journey to ask these questions relating to my own curatorial work that was developing at that time. So over the many years up until the point where I began a master's dissertation, I realized that I'm interested in asking questions that engage what kind of visibility is black women artists or black women practitioners in the arts have. To really discover the potential of really making this a space of critical thinking, of scholarly work, of of curatorial work, and I suppose ten years is one concentrated moment where that has been visible curatorially and scholarly. But it has been a question, I suppose, that one is always asking from the time you are entering university and into the
1: workspace. So. How did you approach the curation of this exhibition? You talk about using specific curatorial tools, and I understand the actual work of curation was at least three years, and you had some battles with access to works, with collectors who weren't very cooperative in allowing you to use the works. How did you, as curators, approach what seems to be such a wide open topic since Black woman artists have been largely invisible to South African art history. So you were having to do a lot of original investigation and discovery in the process of the curation. I'm I'm fascinated to hear how you approached that and what sort of challenges you had to overcome.
2: There are obviously a lot of beautiful, more intentional curatorial decisions and tools that we implemented. However, you know, we're speaking about invisibilized Black women's histories. There are also sort of invisibilized and unavoidable strategies that Black women curators working, firstly, with this kind of generational and for us spiritual content. And secondly, in the context of a largely white institution with colonial foundations and hauntings which could be the case with, obviously, any other museum or, or museum-like structure. So there's a particular sort of repetitious and continuous negotiation that is both incredibly laborious and, of course, angering and an incredibly waste of time that <laughs> that is imposed on us as a strategy. And these negotiations might include, for instance, like having to validate our presence in the institution, having to validate the importance of the exhibition and the content that we are working with, having to sort of aggressively persuade and reassure, you know, the institution of our worth and the worth of the work that we are doing. So it's obviously a lot of like emotional and, and physical labor that even before dealing with the actual curation and whatever strategies we feel the work requires, there's this other added strategy <laughs> that is a kind of imposition. It was on us and I now suspect is often the case with a lot of Black women curators. But, you know, other than the sort of bitter imposed strategy of institutional negotiation, there are obviously more intentional strategies that we employed And some of them were, like I said, intentional, but some of them actually revealed themselves as the curation was happening, as the research was happening, as the dealing with these histories and engaging with these histories was unfolding and making itself
0: evident to us. The very beginning was scrounging around our own archives. It was important to have a multi-pronged, a multi-model form of doing this research. Our own experiences obviously determine this. That we've done projects before, so it's a build-on to the research that we've been doing, I suppose, our entire artistic careers. From books that we go to with suspicion and the necessaries for suspicion, and particularly in how we owe to the many voices that have echoed and bemoaned misrepresentation, the many archives of people we know who've worked with this. And it's important that uh, we acknowledge that this is a community project in one sense. So our reading, our writing is about listening to many different moments, platforms where artists themselves have spoken, those who've written and responded to their work, And those who've done exhibitions, so what are these exhibitions and what do they tend to produce? So it was about doing exhibition history searches. It was about artistic biographical searches. It was about looking at the available written text that has had us asking questions for a number of years. It was about having those very important intimate conversations with artists we consider our elders. You know, we had many conversations with, the artists that we have on show, which from those conversations led us to other artists that are not uh, readily available in text and published information. I think you've pointed out the sort of histories that we were
2: dealing with, which obviously took an incredible amount of research, years and years, as you mentioned, Crystal. Our approach to that research seeped into the approach of how the exhibition is structured was based on a kind of incompleteness and on a kind of fluxness, on a kind of correction, if you will, it would be presumptuous and incorrect to suggest that we're trying to correct history in this exhibition because that falls trap to the sort of hubristic writing of history and black histories in particular. So with that in mind, we are leaning in on ideas of fluxness and incompletion and continuous correction that is often not actually expected in exhibition making. What happens is that when an exhibition is put up, it's put up, right? And then until the closing of that exhibition. And in that period, nothing can really change or transform within the context of that exhibition. But what we are doing though, is acknowledging that the exhibition as a product and the histories that we're dealing with cannot be cemented in that kind of way Because as non-dobego has mentioned, you know, in approaching the histories, they are approached with caution. So even in the presentation of this research that we're presenting out there, we're saying, okay, this is the result. However, we are acknowledging the fact that somebody else might actually walk in the door and say, But you've actually said this and that is not quote unquote, correct. My interpretation of it, of my experience of this moment is this, which is alternative to what you have presented. Not to also mention how this is a community project in that sense, you know, we're not claiming a kind of authority on black women's histories or the way in which they should be curated. We have offered a kind of proposition, and what happens is that a lot of people, as I said, come in and correct certain things. Artists such as Mabo Nizromo will come in and say, the label you have put up is actually incorrect. I have been for decades correcting curators and museums in how to put that label up. And this is in relation to the work at the end of the day where she goes into the Johannesburg Art Gallery storeroom, encounters this headrest, and the artist is quote-unquote unknown, right, in the style of collecting African objects and putting them in particular institutions, and what she does is that she takes that work, puts it in the context of a painting, produces the image of that headrest, but in that painting, she says that she is not really the artist. The unknown artist is the artist. So the unknown artist is credited as the artist of this work, and her name comes in brackets, Boni Lomo, and then the title of the work is At the End of the Day. However, people have always credited the work as Boni Lomo, and then the artist, are the name of the work, as artist Unknown at the end of the day. So obviously this is what we have encountered in history books. So this is what we put up as the label. And she comes in and she says, but I have been correcting people for a very long time. So in that moment, what needs to happen is that we need to change the captioning, the label of that particular work. And there've been a lot of moments like that. And one other instance was when Parusha Naidu not really affiliated with the art world, accompanies her friend to go see this exhibition. And in one of the rooms where we contextualize sort of the historical positioning of these women in South Africa's history, she encounters a book cover with (laughs) with her grandmother's image on it. We obviously don't know who the grandmother is. We don't have that information. She goes on Instagram and says, my grandmother's in this exhibition, and yet she's not really credited. And we're like, but your grandmother isn't in this exhibition because, you know, this is just like an image from the Internet that we put up in the context room. But it turns out that her living grandmother of 88 years old, Sana Naidu, is and has always been a practicing artist. She's not in the exhibition because we didn't encounter the work during the research process. But what the exhibition has potentiated is that this artist is now quote-unquote, revealed to us. And now we need to think about the curation of the show to incorporate this artist who wasn't incorporated at the beginning. So there's like a continuous change, there's a continuous fluxness to the approach
0: of the show. You asked the question of what were the challenges. For us, there are many, but I think the key of this was access and absence. Access in one sense where... Access was denied to us in getting information because we operate knowing this very well that in this country, when you're a person of color searching for particular histories, firstly, it's always assumed that you are trying to undo ways in which this history has been written or challenging it, questioning authorities that have existed. It would take a simple email that we would be writing for over months we would write to the same institution and with no answer that the access becomes quite simple and easy when the email comes from an organization that novel. There had been many of these instances where we know that embarking on such work means that you're navigating these elements of access that sometimes can easily be given to you and sometimes can be denied to you by virtue of the racial dynamics of how archives are constructed. And then of course, another challenge was around absence. And for us, we look at absence not as a negative end, but as a progressive projection, in a sense that the exhibition makes that prevalent. In showing that in these absences, we are able to see and hear the certain histories that are told in different ways. In this lack of access, we have been able to actually access other histories and be able to tell a multifold of histories that would not otherwise. Because, of course, if we had all the access, we would automatically default to the canon, and as it were, in the ways that it formats itself and the archive it is itself and have simply relied on that but because we've been denied access we go okay we are given absence as a platform to which students think what does this absence tell us how does it produce particular kinds of knowledges around Writing with absence and writing against this grain that denies certain ways of writing, so I suppose listening is another kind of strategy that we've used quite deliberately.
1: Not too, I understand that the final form of the exhibition you have work by forty different black woman artists on the exhibition, but that you've found a way to acknowledge the artists who remain invisible. What was that are these? names that you aware of the fact that they were artists but you weren't able to track down physical works or were they artists whose works were unavailable to you because of the kind of institutional prejudice you've just described?
0: It's important, I think, to name, and I will name some of the artists that we've been privileged to access their works, in one of the things that we acknowledge about the kind of exhibition the stars is that with the many, you sit with a plethora of women artists whose name appears, and we hope that through this exhibition, certainly names of artists that have largely been unknown get to be seen, get to be read, get to be remembered, and there are names that I might miss here because documents keeps growing. So Selina Baloyi. Edith Bugani, Rose Mutelezi, Dudu Valerie Desmo, Bongi Lomo, Patience Lamini, Emilia, Faiza Galdari, Josephina Gesa, Bina Kumete, Francina Mahala, Bongi Kasiki, Noria Mabasa, Diana Mabunda, Rosina Mayepe, Esther Masangu. Finesse Makubela, Lessisha Mashau, Esther Masongai, Sisanda Ambana, Elizabeth Mbata, Catherine Mkunu, Glerice Mkulandru, Judith Mkabela, Dina Molefe, Ruth Mudawu, Alina Debele, Henrietta Ngako, Rita Mobo, Gabisil Ngosi, Gosi, Sophie Peters, Helen Sibidi. Avita Sofu, Gidibone Saradabane, and of course, Sana Naidu, who we've just recently discovered. I'm sure I'm missing other names, but I think it is important to recite this moment as a way of acknowledging the names that make the exhibition. It is part of why we've done this. And often to speak of a group show sometimes means that you are going to see the group and never really see the individual. And for us, it's been an important moment at every moment that we get that we are able to say these names out loud and name them for them to be remembered. Some echo more than others, and this is part of the problem of dealing with these histories.
1: How have you actually used the exhibition as a form to disrupt classifications, categories, the forms of understanding work by black woman artists that are actually prejudicial or limiting in the way that these artists were previously understood. I haven't been able to attend the exhibition yet, but it's running till January next year. So I'm really hoping that I have a chance. And what I've seen looking at the documentation of the exhibition is that you've done very interesting things with the form of the exhibition. Could you Talk to us about the sort of decisions you made, the strategic approach you took with the exhibition form.
2: This question goes back a little bit to some of the curatorial strategies that we used, and you know nondobago mentioned the sort of speculative to a degree art historical engagement we had to do with the content. But another important strategy, which has always sort of been at the forefront of the putting together of the show, is a black feminist curatorial care as a strategy. And that has informed a lot of our decision making, which I was going to say sadly, but I don't think sadly is the correct word to put here. Uh, has meant a lot of conversation has had to happen back and forth where a decision would be made, the other would undo it, and we'd sort of go back to the drawing board. So Nonton, I've spent a lot of time discussing things because we acknowledge that whatever decisions we make might be perpetuating some of the problematic canons, despite the obviously good intention of undoing them and some of the decisions that we make, there's always an alternative to it. And an example I'll offer is the fact that we decided to structure the exhibition thematically and conceptually as opposed to chronologically. And whatever strategy we choose would have had its own limitations and its own pitfalls. So obviously the chronological approach hinders to the problematics of periodization and sort of Western classification of experiences of time and we did not want to fall trap to that. However, as you enter the exhibition we have what we call an archive room And in it, we actually do have a timeline that positions these women and their practices in the history. So there's also sort of using certain strategies while we refuse them because we acknowledge the potential that they have and how they can actually advance a particular idea within the show. Well, first of all, just to thank Nonto, you know, for reciting the names of the artists. And you asked earlier about the fact that as you enter the space, there's obviously a list of all the artists whose works are in the show, whose physical works are in the exhibition. And then there's also a list of artists whose works we were either unable to find, we couldn't find traces of them, or we were able to source in public institutions, but couldn't loan because maybe they were already committed to another exhibition, and then the other contentious part of collectors not wanting to learn the works, which obviously speaks to ideas about as, as Nonto has said, you know, accessing the black archive or the limitations of that. So that was a strategy of black feminist care to say you know, exhibition making acknowledges and names only the people whose works are in the show, but we are acknowledging that there's a bigger history here. And we also indicate that this is not extensive. These are only the names that we could find. You know, a lot more possibly exist. And I'm not possibly, but a lot more exist out there. But in the structuring of the different sections, you know, the first encounter you have is sort of the political intervention room where we are acknowledging the fact that, you know, black women have been always participants in political movements and in activism, not only as somebody's partner or somebody's mother, but have been at the forefront of activistic action and how artists have obviously, women artists have obviously also portrayed these activisms and these political movements in their practices. And You know, there are a lot of sort of, I don't want to say obvious groupings, but then we also have a room such as the Love, Pleasure and Intimacy Room, which puts things a bit on its head in that it starts to acknowledge Black women as recipients of pleasure. It starts to ask what happens when we start to consider Black women as being able to rest. And what does it actually mean for black women to rest? We start to think about ideas around leisure and who, you know, there are certain demographics that are expected to always be in leisure and certain bodies are supposed to be potentiating that leisure through their own labor. But we never really think about black women in leisure, you know, especially black women of yesteryear, people of our generation, you know, on Instagram and whatnot, always participating in some form of leisure, but never really consider our mothers, our grandmothers, and what leisure would have looked like for them. So the decision to theorize, conceptualize, and academicize, if you will, these practices in that particular kind of way was very important in highlighting the nuance of these practices, to say the way that they've been written, you know, Jalin is thought of only in relation to, say, her rural upbringing, you know, so-and-so was poor, and how the biographical impinges on actually focusing on the nuance of these women's practices. So we are trying to say, this is, again, our offering, this is what we are seeing in these works, and obviously trying to also not impose those theorizations on the practices, but saying there is a way of imagining otherwise, there is a way of listening and talking and speaking otherwise about these practices. And this is exemplary of how that can happen.
1: The question of visibility, invisibility, and the political import of those two interlinked terms seems to have been a very strongly informing concept for the curation of this exhibition. Can you speak more to that?
0: The visibility and invisibility, I would say let's extend it to hypervisibility and invisibility. So for us, the idea of invisibility is a contestable one because of course, when you asked the question of form, in this one exhibition, it was only towards the end of the exhibition that we looked around and we realized that everything that we have been taught about how invisible black women are and their practices, artistic practices, suddenly there's a whole exhibition that fills up almost 204 works that show you that there's no such thing as invisibility. These women have had visibilities. What hasn't happened is how we account for this visibility in writing in the public imagination, not to kind of pander and claim some sort of grandstanding, but this particular exhibition, we cannot think of any other that has been able to group the work of Black women artists in this kind of scale together, looking at particularly in the specificities that Black women artists offer. And in that you suddenly have, you you have to move away from thinking about it as invisibility. You have to start asking yourself, why is it that we do not ever think of Black women artists' work in this kind of magnitude sense? When you think about art history so many other names show up. The long list of those names is easy to trinkle down. But if you think of Black women artists' work, you don't have this sense. And so for us, the exhibition gestures towards how do we think about visibilities? And then, of course, the question of hypervisibility and invisibility emerges as are the parts that contest us in the sense that many of these artists, the classification, as Portia was hinting earlier on, is one of the biggest contentions where binaries between craft and fine arts have been the ones that separate this practice. We constantly only think of certain practices as craft and therefore that doesn't necessarily contribute to us the way we think about creative practices. When we think about activism as an additional sort of area that we've discovered has been missing in this conversation. You suddenly see a whole lot of artists that haven't been accounted because their work was either in pamphlets, in publications that before activist practices that didn't really show up in exhibitions of a fine art nature. And then you think, what then happens and what do we take of this hypervisibility? Because at certain moments, certain artists are over-celebrated but that doesn't mean that we remember those artists later. They're only there for that moment. Their gender, their backgrounds, their biographies are what that gets astronomically hypervisualized. It's all we can ever remember that they, Clarice Mkulandlu was this big, bold, black woman that, you know, certainly was bold enough to dare the world to make a statement about her work, but also was fearful because she was a black woman and had these kinds of backgrounds, right? And that is the danger of the hypervisibility because in that same moment, we later on, we move on to the next thing and then we forget she ever existed. And so you create these inconsistencies that we articulate as invisibilities without saying, How do we remember these histories and what the exhibition as a form has actually then said? Here's a plethora of production and we need to contend with it and we need to contend with its space in art history. So how do we bring this back and not forget this moment that when we put these works together, when we debunk these classifications, what kind of practice do we actually end up with? These women have had visibilities What hasn't happened is how we account for this visibility in the writing in the public imagination, not to kind of pander and claim some sort of grandstanding, but this particular exhibition, we cannot think of any other that has been able to group the work of Black women artists in this kind of scale together, looking at particularly in the specificities that Black woman artists offer. With what Nonto has just mentioned, is
2: invisibilization cannot be thought of outside of the hypervisibilization. In as much as you know, you have these waves where certain artists are hypervisibilized and then disappear. The thing is that certain aspects of their practice is hypervisibilized or rather not even certain aspects of their practice, but certain aspects of the artists are hyper without actually focusing on the works themselves. So there's always a dubious way in which the hyper happens. And also, you know, thinking of Umgudlantu, for instance, she is highlighted as being the sort of sole or primary Black woman artist who focuses on landscape. And that kind of hypervisibilization erases artists such as Sophie Peters, who are interested in landscape. So this idea of sort of hyper one artist at the expense of everybody else has made itself evident in a very problematic way.
1: Portia, I believe another consequence, perhaps unintended consequence, of putting this exhibition together and exposing these works in the way that you have, is that you've discovered current black woman artists who have been working invisibly. What has your response been to that and how has that come about? You mentioned the elderly artist, Naidu, who's come to light in this way that she's still practicing her art. What other experiences have there been around the exhibition lifting the veil, as it were, from practicing artists, not just being a historical exercise?
2: This exhibition, we always mention how it has been incredibly challenging and emotionally laborious in so many ways. And then there's this other side where it has been giving and just so beautiful and spiritual and just amazing in so many other ways. And our engagements with artists, beyond the engagement with the works, which is obviously very, very important, has been the privilege we have had to engage with artists, some of whom we have worked with before know, such as Memakhabo, CBD, and Mabo Mabon Mom, and a few others who we were aware of, they were in our orbit. But what has happened with this exhibition is that we've able to gather other artists such as Meruth Mutawu, whom we both didn't know before. And what has happened is that someone like Mercy BD will then say, you know, I know Saratabane. Saratabane lives like just up the road. I was talking to her the other day. And then we're like, what? Saratabane is alive. We, You know, we've been trying to find information and couldn't find it. And then Mercy BD will put us together with Metabane. So beyond that sort of gathering and communion has been moments also where Certain artists, and Nandobeko can speak a little bit more to this, have suddenly been made available to us. And the surprise and the shock of, oh my God, so-and-so is still alive, has been both a beautiful moment, but also incredibly sad, because why should it be in 2022, we are suddenly saying, oh, so-and-so is still alive, and we can actually engage with them beyond just engaging with their work. And then obviously two years prior to the opening of the exhibition, someone like Mr. or passing away and we didn't even know. And thinking that if we'd known that this person was alive, we would have obviously engaged with them, engaged with their practice in a particular kind of way, because speaking to these women helps in correcting the ways in which they were written, you know? So the ability to commune with these artists has actually just been incredible.
0: Everything that we keep going back to touches very much at the core of what we mean by Black feminism and what we mean by framing the exhibition as a Black feminist gesture. And for us, it is a project of care. And this care articulates itself in so many different ways. Through the exhibition, as you walk through, you will see we've drawn out certain works as a way of showing that care, that What if we imagine the existence of photography throughout this period and something that, of course, medium, as a question comes up over and over and over again, some of those photographs we haven't been able to access. There is a growing interest towards photographers like Mabel Betu from the 60s, Joyce and Dazilwane from the 60s, but being able to access their work is extremely difficult. And so how do we weave in this process and method of witnessing and creative production that is not, again, the obvious because the visual conjuring image, when you think of black women's artists, it is painterly, it is crafty, and never in these other mediums that Ruth Mudao, the Mabel Tethos, the Joyce and La begin to signal that actually, even this kind of masculine mediums, they were participating in it. And so thinking of this as a feminist project is what brings that joy that when we do discover these relationships that we are growing through this community, we are able to find ourselves hearing, producing and engaging with a different kind of exhibition that we didn't even imagine we were doing from the get-go. There's obviously a particular kind
2: of care that we as curators have to give to the artists and how they engage in the space. Cause we're also bring people who maybe don't engage with museum spaces and demanding a particular kind of respect. And we have to ensure that they get it. But what has also been humbling and again, I'll use the word beautiful is how we have received so much love and care from these elders themselves people like Ruth Mutao, people like Mabongi and receiving texts two weeks as we are installing from Mabongi saying, I've curated exhibitions. I know that you are probably not sleeping, not eating at the moment. So I'm just sending strength. You're almost there. And at the opening, them being like, well done, you know, you did this. Just The, <laughs> the amount of care that we have also received from them has been... Again, I'll use the word incredible because my vocabulary is just not able to express the gratitude and the beauty of that engagement.
1: You express it very well. I almost regret that we don't include the video in our podcast because I think the way that you were embodying the the responses to the way that these women elders have reached out to to what you're doing and recognized the value of what you're doing is very powerful. For the last question, and this is really getting us into the question of art, artistic practices as research. The very knotty question, particularly here in South Africa, the recognition of curation as a creative practice. And as we all know, it's currently not recognized, it's explicitly not recognized by the Department of Higher Education. So unlike a lot of other artistic practices, which are curation is excluded. Could you speak to curation in particularly the curation that you practice, that is exemplified in the exhibition of When Rain Clouds Gather. Could you speak to why that should be recognized as creative practice?
0: Porsche is going to answer this with a, a lot more rational thought because I think I get, not emotional, but there's this, an air of cynicism that over the years just being working in a space where one's work is not recognized it has been quite discouraging. And so I will try and answer this with some sense of generosity. That in one sense, of course, the discipline of curating is an emergent one as a discipline in and of itself. And excitingly, it has been so captured in the public imagination that of course, today, almost everyone uses this word curate, curate my clothes, I curate my desk, curate uh, DJs, uh, curating, that it has become an everyday. The sad thing about that is that of course, it then has meant that it is so everyday. People don't see it as a discipline in and of itself. And the paradox of looking at curating as something that industrially or the ecology of the art market somehow is a profitable structure or nature of thing is incorrect. But besides the the kind of ways in which the, the higher education is looking at this form, It hasn't dampened the way that we continue to work because fundamentally, many of us are trained from the artistic world. So our sensibility to space, to using exhibitions as ways of thinking, scholarly, conceptually, intellectually, has been very fundamental to the way that we work. So as I think of myself, my work as a curator is an extension of my creative practice it really permeates to everything that I do, both from the classroom environment and to the projects. And often we speak uh, with my colleagues that without the curatorial work, without the conceptual work, without the scholarship that you hold, what you teach in the classroom is very devoid of practice. And so for me, for the longest time, these exhibitions that I've done without acknowledgement within the institution have been the place and the source of A resource for me to have teaching content and have been fundamental in the way that i think about the site and the space where knowledge and practice has a place and an an intersecting moment and this is crucial in ways that we think about an exponentially growing industry such as visual arts and the creative field as a whole is that there's always space that holds us to question how certain things come together, and I think of the exhibition as a form that allows me to stand still and say, "What happens if I put this and this together? What other kinds of theories and knowledges do am I able to?" Bring out. And so the need to constantly go back to that space that holds and allows me to pose questions has been very important. This particular exhibition, in fact, as we were building it, for me, it was content and form that was going to go back into the classroom. The course that I've been teaching, writing out histories, has been the core of how I framed the ways that we think about. Object biography. So, this course is centered around how do you study an artwork to engage with the broader history of not only the artists, of the practice in which they made that work, the particular moments, the industries, location, the, the exhibitions that made that possible. And so, taking this exhibition as a site in which new artists are able to come back into the classroom has been no-brainer. This is the reason why we go and curate is that we discover new knowledges that we're able to bring back. We talk about decolonizing the classroom. We talk about decolonialists as this is and thinking about decoloniality within the education sector. The doing means that we're almost doing the double work. We have to kind of be in the practice to know how to shift what it is that we're teaching. I found myself in Asanndraina in Rockdrift, with students going to meet some of the artists we hadn 't been able to meet in person and interview towards both the catalog and to the exhibition and back to the content that students are examining in the classroom and that for me is what feeds my heart. It really makes me joyful that students who can see in practice what it means that you're doing research that you can apply, not theoretically, not going and finding the books because those books are not readily available. So off we went a weekend and we found, Amazing artist, Elizabeth Mbata, was there ready for us to interview her. And students were then able to really pose different questions, were able to say, what kind of theories are you able to generate that isn't written because a large part of Elizabeth Mbata's work is written biographically. Oh, she loved birds. She produced these ceramic pieces that were interesting. And that's all we have. And so the student is now faced with a very difficult question, because she now has to produce new theories of thinking about Elizabeth Bata's work. So that, for me, illustrates what curating potentiates in ways that we are thinking about teaching and learning. It potentiates the way that we're thinking about practice and the possibilities of writing our own histories differently.
1: It does seem that in our context, South Africa, Africa, in context of decolonizing knowledge, decolonizing existing art histories, the curator has a particularly important role to play in a way that maybe the individual artists aren't empowered to play quite such a role. What are your thoughts, again, on this question of the recognition of curation as not just an intellectual task, but as a creative practice?
2: I would personally be wary of creating a kind of hierarchy in terms of importance in the decolonial quest. I think, obviously, artists play a very important role in producing these works that are able to be read within the context of a decolonial curatorial project. Art historians or art theorists play a particular important role as well, you know writers and art critics also play an important role in how they write about these exhibition makings because you know, somebody might put together a decolonial exhibition and it can be written in a particular kind of way that doesn't foreground that so I do think that we all play a role that contributes to the entirety of this quest and curatorial practice is also at the centre of that you know, and, and as much as all the others are at the centre of that which is why it's a bit of a sore point that you know curation does not get acknowledged as both creative practice but also research practice. Like we said, Nonto, and I spend years doing the labor of you know it's not just the final product that should be acknowledged. Like there is a lot of labor that goes into realizing this this kind of project. To also mention what Nonto said, you know, there is with my practice as well a cyclical way in which. I practice as well in that the curation might inform the research, which might inform writing, which informs teaching, which informs research. So there's just like a cyclical way in which the practice is realized, which cannot be divorced from the merit of the work that we do. And I don't mean us individually, I just mean as curators. But just also talking about the challenges of understanding curation, I think that there's also or more importantly, a challenge with accepting different forms of curatorial practices. You know, When Rain Clouds Gather, Black South African Women Artists, 1940 to 2000, is very much a formal, normative piece of curatorial work, right? And Nonto and I felt that that is what the project needed and necessitated. But there obviously are the more conceptual ways of understanding curatorial practice and there's sometimes no space to accept those newer, less formal forms or formal settings. And conversely, you find that the more conceptual forms of approaching curatorial practices look down on or do not find the merit in the more traditional form. So the minute we start to get boggled down in which form is better, which form should be appreciated more, which form does more, is we don't really get the chance to appreciate how these different approaches to curatorial practices, which don't always necessarily end in an exhibition product per se. The minute we start to get boggled down in the hierarchy of these different forms, then we actually miss opportunity to appreciate what they all contribute to the pool.
1: For listeners who are interested in this exhibition but unable to get to Cape Town, I believe you are working on the catalogue. Can you tell us anything about the progress with the catalogue when we can expect that?
0: Before Portia answers the question on the catalogue, and this is partially a response to the catalogue, I wanted to cite what might be important for people to know the way that the exhibition designs itself. And hopefully this gets translated into the catalogue as we think and produce it. It was important to think there are 10 proposals in the exhibition. In these proposals, how do we think of archives? How do we think of the political role that women played or have commented on politics that were happening at that time? How do we think of love? pleasure and intimacy, how do we think of the questions around gender and their fluidities through the understanding of African feminisms, how do we think of landscapes, how do we think of photo and print, how do we think of gestures towards aspirations in the way that we've thought about Esther Masango's work, how do we think of spirituality and religion and, and the conflations of these two things, how do we think of possibilities of spectacular stories and spectaculative ways in which you think about those histories and trauma. And why I'm mentioning that is that these are things that we hope can be carried through into the catalogue and the gestures and how do we translate the exhibition and the way that we've designed it into the catalogs and how people can still see the catalog as another curatorial space how do we think about that translation of the exhibition and the catalog being another curatorial space and maybe then Porsche can come in and say more about where we are with the catalog mike you so just to say that you know we've obviously not done our working on this collaboratively
2: which we are obviously thinking of as a co-curatorship but We are also thinking of co-curatorship in a broader sense in that there's a huge community of women of colour that we have been able to contact and draw from in the realisation of the project. You know, in speaking about particular moments around Islam, not on I are not too familiar with the religion, we can call on a particular community member who is able to direct us in our conceptualization of certain things. And that obviously extends to the catalogue in that we are acknowledging that there's a community of black and brown or women of colour out there who are able to bring their own perspectives to what we have offered. And we've invited a number of them who've contributed incredibly different texts. You know, the mandate was, could you touch on this? The approaches have been so different And contribute to different aspects of thinking about black women's creative practices, both historically and in the contemporary moment. The catalogue is in production. It's quite a monumental task, which is why it hasn't come out yet. But definitely by the end of the year, we'll have the physical copy. I should mention that Nonto and I are incredibly different people with different approaches, which has I think serviced the project in a very good way. For instance, I was like, "The catalogue needs to come out very quickly," you know, and Nonto had to calm me down a little bit and say, "No, Poshia, the catalogue has to be done right. So if that means that it comes a bit later on in the exhibition, then that's what needs to happen," you know. So we are taking time to ensure that it represents different ways of thinking about Black women's practices. It represents the many different women and their products that we have encountered. And obviously, just mentioning the fact that this is a Black feminist care work, there are moments of, you know, we can't just do things in a normative kind of way, whether it is the engagement with how works are put in the catalog or how we give feedback to the writers. So the catalogue is in production and will be coming out in the next few months. But what the catalogue and the exhibition does is obviously look at a number of Black women artists. We, We say 40 is a number, but it changes a lot. We are acknowledging that we have obviously offered a product that clamps the women together. And the danger of that is then that individual practices don't get acknowledged So we are trying to find ways of ensuring that those individual practices are actually focused on. And we are having a symposium in October where we're inviting a number of academics to sort of draw on one or two practices that maybe have not actually been theorized in depth in the past.
1: I'm very glad to hear about that. And it seems one advantage of producing the catalogue towards the end of the exhibition's run, is that you draw on the lessons that have been learnt from presenting the exhibition and, as you've described, the interactions you've had with artists, with black women, with the broader public around the exhibition and the way that you've curated it. And I really compliment both of you on creating what is clearly a very significant exhibition and an exhibition that is certainly due to change or at least challenge the discourses around Black woman artists in South Africa over the last 60 years and beyond. So thank you very much for giving the time. And just a reminder to all our listeners that the exhibition runs until the 9th of January, 2023. So... If you can get down to Cape Town, it's definitely something that should be on your agenda. So, Portia, Nontbeku, well done, and thank you very much for the time. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Docheri, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guests, Dr. Portia Malachi, and Nontumbeko Ntumbela, the curators of When Rain Clouds Gather, the exhibition of Black Woman Artists from 1940 to 2000, which is currently running at the Norval Foundation in Cape Town until the 9th of January next year. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the witt Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast was composed and recorded by Lee Zvere and is used under a Creative Commons license.